Yo, grab a sage. It's a safe space. We Let's make space so you can take space. space. Everybody bring their best self. It's, it's a safe space. space. Anybody we can make pop space it so you can take space. She is story. I'll hold the space for you. She is story. I'm listening. I'll take it and I'll take it and I'm listening. I'll hold the space for you. It's a safe she space. Story. We make space so you can take space. This is just healing. A new podcast from Men Healing where we'll be talking frankly about men and sexual trauma. We'll be taking a deep dive into the diverse range of perspectives and personal stories about the social and cultural factors that impact healing for male survivors. Sexual trauma does not exist in a bubble. Healing shouldn't either. Let's examine and discuss those intersectional ways that trauma and healing are impacted by racial and gender identities, socioeconomic status, oppression, and white supremacy. Let's listen, let's learn, let's heal. Before you share your story, let me tell you who I am. Yo, my name is Corey, and speaking truth ain't always easy, but you gotta own it. And unaddressed pain, we can't condone it, cause we done healed from painful moments. That trauma, we pick a bone with, too much for us to sit alone with. And I ain't perfect, but certain that what we doing is working. I'm just asking, how you healing if others is hurting? Share your story. Good morning, brother. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. I'm well. So, so good to see you. So good to have you on the Just Healing Podcast. Man, it's been it's been a short period of time since we met, but I know um, from the moment that, that I heard you speak, we were doing a project together with uh, JDI and uh, PCAR, uh, Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. And we were holding space, uh, office space to help people understand ways and like figure out ways to address um, male survivors of, of sexual harm. When I heard you come on, I was just like, and the things that you said um, were so powerful and not just powerful because you were extremely knowledgeable and the things that you were saying were spot on and directly connected to what was needed. But I think the power that you exhibited that I found the most attractive and resonating was the humility in which you presented that information and not in a sense, not a fake humility, like you're just trying to, you know, play down what you know, but just like the energy and the spirit of your message uh, came from a place of humility. It came from a place of love. That's when I knew I was like, oh man, I got to have this brother on the podcast and we got to have this conversation. And uh, and here we are. And so thank you for agreeing to be a part of this. Um, Just Healing Podcast, we are really committed to like expanding the community of survivors, of male survivors of sexual harm and various forms of harm. And also just helping people to see like the intersectionality between um, sexual harm, other systems of oppression, the way that shows up in our bodies and some of that stuff that leads to us acting out in ways that are consistent with perpetuating um, the patriarchy and perpetuating white supremacy and perpetuating self-hate and anti-blackness. Um, and so with that said, uh, I want the audience to really get to know you. I want them to, to hear all the beautiful, magical things that you have to share. And um, I always do this. I start off every interview and I ask people what their signs are. I'm into astrology. I'm a Gemini, prototypical Gemini. What's your sign? And tell me what your sign means to you. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. First of all, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the invitation so much. Uh, likewise, in that meeting, when you spoke, I immediately knew that we were kin. Uh, this is like a certain thing, a certain spirit where you just know, like, we definitely need to be in a room together and have a conversation. Um, but my sign is Leo. And I guess what that means to me, I am into astrology as well. I don't necessarily know as much about all of the different signs and everything. I have a general understanding about like how everybody's compatible or not compatible. As I know that Leos and Geminis, we generally are pretty compatible right off the bat. But yeah, being a Leo to me means, uh, I guess I went through a journey of going, understanding it, but, but being the, the ruler of ego. Uh, so understanding ego, 
understanding position and placement of like everyone as celestial bodies um, and being like ruled by fire and by the sun and a ruler of ego. Our responsibility in the community is to remind each other that we can all, or we're all here uh, as like the sun being in the middle of the galaxy and all, they can see all of the different uh, planets uh, and all of the other planets can always see each other. Uh, so being a Leo, you're meant to kind of embody, like understanding, like go through this journey of like the ego <laughs> as a Leo, of understanding like you're not the only person here and supposed to spread that message. <laughs> so that's what being a Leo means to me. Powerful. I knew it. I knew you were going to come with something profound. I have a, a spiritual guide and a friend of mine who I actually interview, interviewed on the podcast, Walter Simpkins, and he was explaining Leo to me. He said Leo in association with lions. And he was saying that lions were, were the protectors of, of the kings and they stood at the, the foot or the side of the kings because of their ability uh, to sense frauds and lies and they could smell it. And um, they said that the, he said that the lions were able to sense when someone was being untruthful. I think about that because one of my all of my Leo friends, they will not let a lie sustain itself. They're <laughs> coming in skeptical and like, wait a minute, that ain't right. And they're gonna speak out against it. So thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that perspective. So let's just jump right in because um we're gonna have a lot to talk about. So who is Javon Howard? Yeah, who is Javon Howard? Uh that question was when you first proposed that to me, it caught me off guard. Typically, you know, so I do these type of podcasts more often recently with my work. I'm often asked, like, what do you do? Uh, and I think something that we all do with each other when we first meet somebody. It's like, what do you do? Like, how did you get here? Why do you do the work that you do? What is your work? Uh, so asking me, like, who is Javon Howard? Who am I? It caught me off guard a little bit. I wasn't sure, like, how do I introduce myself? Because I, I am a lot of things. I do a lot of things. I am so many things. I am J-Pop Howard. So first and foremost, me, I am a writer. I refer to myself as a warrior sorcerer. I'm a revolutionary. I'm a poet, a painter, a servant leader. Uh, my role professionally I am the manager of engaging men initiatives with the Ohio Alliance to End Sexual Violence. Um, I also do social justice education around transformative justice. I'm working on uh, getting my certified family life education uh, so I can do more family life education, um, well, family life education as well. Part of my LLC that I've been kind of working on. Um, I am a trainer with a call to men. If you're not familiar, call the men is with uh, Tony Porter and Ted Bunch. They do a lot of organizing and work with men and boys nationally, uh, particularly around like sports culture and working with men and boys in high schools, uh, middle schools, all of those type of things. And they do a lot of working uh, within anti-blackness as well, and incorporating that into the work on like working against working with engaging men. Who else? <laughs> what else do I do? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's who I am. I, I love the people. I love the work that I do. I'm a person that's very passionate. I am very tenacious, very determined, um, very focused. And that's that's who I am. Beautifully stated, brother. That's right. I think I think that is the the thing, right? The norm is to talk about what we do when we're when we're asked who we are. The process of getting to know who we are is not typically supported by the institutions in the world that we live in, from the institution of family to our education institutions, even our religious and spiritual institutions, for the most part, are not conducive to us really getting to know who we are. And I think that's a big part of the journey, right? A big part of the healing journey as we think about you know, our experiences of harm, whether it's harm that we've directly experienced related to sexual harm, gun violence, or mass incarceration, or it's just harm that comes from the tentacles of these systems of oppression and the way that they impact the people that we love and impact our lives that might not seem like they're directly hurting us, but they are hurting us because they're compromising 
our ability and further compromising our ability to like really check in with ourselves, tap into ourselves and get to know who we are. Because many of those systems of oppression are coming with definitions of who we are and how we should show up and who we should be, you know? And I think we, it keeps us distracted from that process. So the healing journey represents, you know, in so many ways, like this, this process of reconnecting to yourself. We have this uh, operational definition that we came up with for uh, a scale that we developed called the community scale for healing possibilities. And our operational uh, definition of, of healing is getting to the core and reclaiming possibility. So with that said, I want to ask you, like, what has your healing journey been like? And like, how does your healing journey relate to all of the things that you do? Your, your love for the people. Um, I know you say you're a revolutionary, like your revolutionary spirit, your warrior spirit. How did your healing journey connect to that? Uh, I mean, that has been the healing journey. Honestly, the healing journey for me has been trying to discover who I am. So my healing journey has been a journey of remembering. Um, I'm actually uh, working on kind of like a creative memoir. I'm calling it a creative memoir because it talks about my, my experience going through this, this, I call it an existential midlife crisis uh, that kind of started in 2020 uh, that really kicked off during the civil, the civil uprisings and the protests. Uh, so this healing journey for me has been this journey of trying to remember how did I get here? Who am I? Why do I do the things that I do? You know, good and bad. You know, what is it that I am leaving in my wake? And so my healing journey has been a journey of, of consciousness. So this is what I, my book is about. It's about, like, you know, having this consciousness of knowing who I am, you know, that I am, like, this activist. I know that I work in anti-violence. I know that, you know, I love to read and I'm, I'm a researcher and I'm trying to become a family scientist, all these things. And being so consumed by rage, being so disrupted and distracted by, you know, police brutality, you know, being distracted by racial terror. So, you know, when I was in college, during my years in college, was during the years that Trump was being elected. Uh, so the college atmosphere shifted so much with like my peers and colleagues, uh, friends, family members, all sorts of things were happening. And I was just being disrupted every step of the way. With that disruption and with that rage, I don't know what happened, but essentially it's like fighting in the battle, knowing where you are, being conscious, knowing that you have to do what you need to do to get free, uh, to, to heal, to understand who you are. And then forgetting, you know, in that fight, in that trauma, in that intensity, just forgetting everything. And then spending like the next few years of my life picking up all of those pieces. And so we're trying to pick up the pieces and figure out like, how did I get here? Why did I get so angry? How did I, why did I show up in the way that I did? What does it say about me? What does it say about what I'm willing to do and not willing to do as like a warrior, as a, as an activist, as a person, as me, as Javon, who is Javon? And trying to figure out what led me to make the decisions that I made to show up in 2020, to show up in this work in general, the way that I do. Uh, and then trying to figure that out and trying to remember, I started rediscovering things that I actually forgot on purpose a long time ago about my childhood, about my adolescence. So I started reading uh, not only was I reading like revolutionary texts, so reading like uh, Huey P. Newton about the Black Panthers, reading about Martin Luther King, but I also picked up books around like emotional abuse. Uh, so I started picking up books around attachment, understanding possessiveness and anger and trauma. And I started remembering things that happened in my childhood. I started understanding certain relationships I had with certain people growing up differently. I started seeing some of the issues I had as an adult with people, uh, with my partners, with a new light. Uh, I learned new words like domestic violence. You know, I learned new words around emotional abuse. I learned new things around what childhood sexual abuse looks like and can seem like. And then I started going mad. 
because I was trying to figure out and understand more about myself as a black man, understanding myself in this role in this revolution. And then I started uncovering all these things more interpersonal and personal on accident. And like how I needed to, how those two things sort of blended together for me. And that journey was really just like trying having to take one step at a time and facing things one step at a time and doing a lot of time traveling and understanding how so much of human experience is around so much loss and grief and trauma, especially as a black person. But what we can do about it going forward. So it's like this loss of consciousness, coming back to consciousness, um, being unconscious and semi-conscious, going mad, trying to escape all of the forces and conditions that have put me in the positions of trauma, finding that these forces and conditions are still here and persisting, that I already fought against them, and I'm going to have to continue fighting against them the rest of my life, but I can't continue fighting against this to a point where I'm destroying myself over and over. So what does it look like to be on a journey to tenderness? What does it look like to actually like heal and be able to hold that truth of all of those experiences and still move forward in those truths and still be who I am and not necessarily what those things would want me to be, you know, not necessarily reacting out of like just being angry because I have all this stuff going on in my past that I just haven't resolved and I'm just out here fighting because I need an outlet to fight. But do I really want to fight? Do I really want to show up in this way? Who am I? And so that's what my journey has been, like really trying to turn toward myself. You know, what have I been leaving in my wake? When I have been conscious, when I have been unconscious, what am I doing? What have I been, how have I been spending my physical time? We all spending, we're doing, all doing something every single day. Who am I with what I'm doing? What does that mean? What is my responsibility to portrait myself accurately? I love all of that. I love the concept that you constructed of remembering in the way that you describe it. And I love that you put the, you made the connection between that and trauma. Because one of the things that I was, uh, I was recently listening to Vessel Vanderkoff talk about like trauma and, you know, we're in an era in which so many people use the term, right? It's like, it's like everything is associated with trauma. Um, to the extent that it's, in my opinion, it's becoming like watered down. It's a watered down concept. Um, that it really hasn't been, it's been investigated in some ways so we can understand like historical trauma, ancestral trauma, but like that piece about, the way that trauma compromises your memory of things for the purpose of survival, right? So like it, it is actually serving us in a way that allows us to forget some of the most tragic, harmful, life-threatening experiences that we've had, particularly during our childhood. I think in that same vein, you can not only just forget like the, the tragedy, and those experiences that were traumatic, you can also forget like the joyful experiences that you might have had, right? And I think that's so critical as we, as we talk about movement work and reimagining and imagining a future and a world that is just, that is equitable, that is loving, that is allowing of the tenderness that we all have inside of us. But sometimes we forget that in this, like you said, this, this effort to try to create it. And it's, it's interesting too, because, um, Howard Zinn talked about in the people's history of the United States, he says, uh, the oppressors become the oppressed. And I'm like, wow. Like if we haven't remember, if we have, we don't have the ability to remember the joy, the innocence of our childhood that might have been wiped out from trauma, right? And effort to like protect us from remembering some of the tragedies that really hurt us badly. When we get into these positions of power, what are we going to call on as we think about reimagining, as we think about creating this new world, right? Um, and so the, the concept that you develop about remembering is so poignant, so needed as we think about this journey for some liberation, this journey for, you know, this movement to, to revolutionize and like, make these radical root changes and uproot these, these systems of oppression that have been, you know, guiding us 
them on a path of self-destruction and planetary destruction. And so it's needed. So, you know, I think one of the things that I, I love that you talk about and that we've talked about in the past is the fact that you're a warrior, right? And, and, and I'm thinking about identity and I'm thinking about um, some of the things that you shared with me about the ways in which people have conceptualized warriorship and certain identities, certain identities as it relates to masculinity, as it relates to manhood. Could you talk about that? Can you talk about like, you know, share, share with the audience a little bit about how your identity has played a role in your, your healing journey and your positionality in the world. And how does that relate to your concept of warriorship and the warrior work that you're doing, exercising that tremendous courage to like sacrifice? And that's the thing too. And I'll just add that last thing. And we talked about this. One of the major attributes of, of warriorship is that courage, that courage and that willingness to, to compromise some of the, the, the trappings that, you know, these systems of oppression offer us or uh, use to pull us in the directions that they want to in order to perpetuate itself. So, talk a little bit about that for me. So for me, I have, I started, it's been, it was difficult for me to really land on that space of like, you know, am I a warrior, really? I needed to like really start with like decolonizing what that meant and what that looks like to be a warrior. So you mentioned like that a core part of being a warrior is like that courage. Um, but what does it mean to be courageous? What does it look like to be courageous? You know, what is it, what do we teach boys and what do we teach black boys? What does it mean and look like to be courageous? You know, sometimes, um, so I, I'm going to call on like Friday. Are you familiar with the movie Friday? So we have two different uh, representations of what it looks like to be courageous when we're asking, um, ah, what's his name? When we're going, he's fighting against Debo. Mm-hmm. So you can either fight with your fist or you can fight with a gun. So it's like, what does it look like to be a warrior? Like, what does it look like to fight at all? Right? So like for my, where I started off was actually with uh, conflict mediation. I think it was like third or fourth grade. There was a conflict resolution program. Um, I was one of the students that was selected to be a part of that program. Uh, so the program essentially was that we were trained on nonviolent communication and how to help other students mediate their conflicts instead of fighting with one another. And that's what I did throughout most of my tenure in uh, elementary school, middle school, and high school. It changed and throughout that time. It wasn't always consistent. Um, but it did like elevate and become more age appropriate with that training um, as I went through the program. So I've always been and seen myself as like a mediator, the person who sits in between everybody and like nobody, like we don't have to fight. You know, we can talk it out. We can find some other resolution. We can figure out some peaceful, nonviolent resolutions for things. Um, and this was like in my time in middle school and high school. During that time, we were also doing some forms of organizing. Some of the organizing was technically, I would say, disruptive for the school to prison pipeline. At that time, we didn't know that's what was going on. I don't think that language existed at that time. Uh, But some of the work was similar to that. Um, So what happened was that students, if they got into any kind of like fight in class or recess or whatever, physical, verbal altercation, um, they would either get suspended or expelled from school. So our program was an intervention where instead of doing that, they would come to us and they, we would talk it out. They'll be able to have their conversation. We'll teach them new skills on how to solve their conflict with words. They shake hands and they go about their day and about their way without having to be expelled from school or getting like discipline marks on their, on their record. Over time, that turned into folks needing to be sent to a hearing um, in front of a judge if they got a referral or expelled. So that we started organizing around that, like, no, send, us to, send them to us. So I've always known myself as more as like that type of warrior as a mediator and finding my identity when I went to college, more of a culture shock. So I went to a PWI, uh, predominantly white institution. Uh, so it was a big culture shock for me. I call it 
the time I realized I was black, uh, they were very eager to let me know that I was black and that we were different. And so that was sort of my day-to-day experience while I was in college, just like facing a lot of racism, um, sometimes very much outright white supremacy. And that profoundly impacted the way that I thought about how do we resolve conflict. You know, I started studying more about historical perspectives around global violences, around um, history of oppressions and systems and institutions of oppression. So I started thinking about violence differently outside of just interpersonal and intimate partner, intimate violence and domestic violence, but as an institutional structure, as an oppressive structure as well, um, how we can organize violence into our culture, into our logic of understanding. And what does it look like to be a mediator (laughs) within those types of systems? And that's not necessarily always possible in the way that I originally imagined it would be. And so for me, shifting the narrative around what it looks like to be a warrior, because then I was looking for role models. And the only role models I could find, again, was like, fight with your fist or fight with a gun. To be a warrior was to be aggressive. It is to fight. It is to, you know, throw and use your body and your, your mind, your voice, with by any means necessary to serve your community and win the mission. And so that brings me to then thinking about, like, what is the mission exactly? So that's something I would encourage, like, all men to be thinking about when we're thinking about ourselves as warriors. You know, what is the purpose of being a warrior? Why is that important to us? You know, why are we having a conversation about warriorship as men all the time? Again, what does it look like to maybe even be like a peacemaker instead? And so that's kind of like the journey that I'm in right now because I'm used to just like being that peacemaker. But I've had shifts throughout these past few years where I have taken on a different kind of role. And so to be honest, like that's that's where I'm at with that. Like I'm still in that duality of like how do I show up as like my real man? just being only a peacemaker. Yes, yes, and yes. Wow, I mean, first of all, I'm just like still in awe with the fact that you have been organizing since elementary school, brother. Um, (laughs) You were special. So that just tells me that this is something that's always been on your heart, right? And just to think about it right now, I have two, I have two sons. One is in elementary school and one just started middle school. Elementary school and middle school can be some of the most challenging times of our lives because there's so much pressure to conform and to be and to fit and to connect, right? And your value and the validation that comes from being a part of is like so intense. And I see it with my, my sons, my babies. And it's something that it like, it, it keeps me up at night because I worry about them, you know? Mom and I have done a really good job of just trying to instill certain values of in them. But we know that like at a certain point, like that peer group becomes much more of an influence than, than your parents, than your father, no matter how cool your dad is. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, and so for someone to, you know, your age to be in elementary school to, to make that decision to, to try to fight for an alternative way to address harm and violence at such a young age truly speaks to your courage, right? Because that was not a popular uh, decision. I'm sure it was, there weren't many mediators. It it wasn't like we had a whole cadre, we had a whole cadre of mediators, like 30 mediators, 40, 50 mediators. People weren't signing up for that. You know what I mean? People were still trying to go outside and see what's happening at that three o'clock bell and, and watch the fight let alone break it up, intervene, or be there to try to de-escalate the situation and help them realize that there's a peaceful way to address the harm that they experience. So really, really appreciate that and that you share that. And that's something that I'm, I'm taking that I'm going to talk to my son about. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was a journey. It wasn't necessarily like straightforward. Like I was always just like the mediator. I'm not going to pretend like, and I was always like the good guy or the good boy. Like, I mean, I've always been the same person throughout my life, but yeah, I definitely found moments and times in my life where I desperately wanted to conform and I desperately wanted to fit in. And so 
outside of just like the mediator stuff, but just like what your, your point is, as like a boy, you know, trying to become a man, you know, we're told that we are older than we are when we're younger. Uh, I remember I told the story a few times, but I was always told by my parents, by my father in particular, uh, whenever he was not at home or he wasn't around, you know, I was the man of the house. Now, I'm not sure if that's something that you're familiar with. I had that experience and know anyone had that experience, but like, like you're the man of the house. Um, so I tell the story about how, so like in my efforts to perform, right? So like what it means to really be a man, really be a boy, you know, despite like, you know, also trying to disrupt violence. Uh, so I'm told I'm the man of the house, right? And so my mom, she was working really hard for the special dresser. Uh, that she wanted. Like, she really wanted this really big black dresser with, like, the six doors that had, like, the nice, shiny knobs, big mirror. Like, it was expensive. She had been saving up for it. She had been working really hard for it. It was her prized possession. She was very, very excited and happy to have this dresser. And so I'm an artist. I like to draw. I like to paint. I like to color. Um, I'm at home one day with Dad. It's funny because Dad is actually home this time and when he's not home I'm the man of the house but he was home and I'm you know drawing away doing my art project and I guess don't remember this myself my parents told me about this and what happened but I guess I got tired of the canvas I was using with paper and wanted a new thing to draw on and her dresser is what I chose and so I took all my markers and my crayons and my paint and I went to town on her dresser, on the mirror, on the surface, inside each and every drawer, all on the outside. I'm just drawing and having a time. My dad comes in and finds me. He's like, what are you doing? Like, why are you drawing all of your mother's dresser? She just bought this, what's wrong with you? And I look at him, dead serious in the eyes. I tell him, I'm the man of the house. He said, what? I'm the man of the house. <laughs> and I went back to drawing and finishing my, my canvas. So mom came home. And of course, you know, she asked me, like, the way it went was like that. Well, like removable ink, like marker. Come on now. <laughs> it was not removable. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no. It was years later that I that they told me the story like in full. I remember pieces of it. Uh, it was years later that I was like hanging out or checking on them in their bedroom and I looked at the dresser and I was like this is ugly. <laughs> like who did this to this dresser? Why would you have this dresser? <laughs> Why would you get a dress with a bunch of stuff drawn over it like this? And she got so mad. Like, you don't remember what you did? Like You told us that you were the man of the house and so you felt like you had the right to vandalize my property. So when she came home, I was disciplined and we had a conversation and they explained to me what being the man in the house was supposed to mean and it was supposed to mean what it was I was trying to do in those programs, which was look after people, provide for people, protect people. And it's interesting, like how when we say be the man in the house, when we talk about being men or boys, we overemphasize this this control and this power and this entitlement piece. And I was a boy. I'm just thinking about all the boys who don't have interventions and what kind of boy and what kind of man I would have become continuing that kind of behavior and believing I'm the man of the house in that kind of way without any kind of disruption. So at the same time, the same token, it's not like I was just like a good old boy all the time. I definitely have, have had my journey. I've had to do with deconstructing ways of masculinity. Man, you, you said a few things that just like stimulated thoughts about some previous like experiences. And I'm just thinking about what it meant for me at that back during that time to be, to be a man, to be a boy definitely had a lot to do with control, definitely had a lot to do with violence. You know, I never forget. I tell people all the time, like I, I grew up in an era in which like, if I wasn't physically dominant, if I didn't, the way we said it, you didn't have a rep when I was growing up. Like if you weren't known to be a fighter, 
nobody wanted you. You know what I mean? You couldn't get no girlfriends. You couldn't get anyone. It was like, oh, you are. And that was a really hard thing for me to conceptualize as I started my healing journey. And it was really important for me to have more of a systems analysis, specifically an analysis of, of, of the patriarchy and of, you know, sexism and how that shows up in, in our society, how it's infested us specifically as men, um, but everyone. And I think about the way I felt when, you know, I tried to be tender. I tried to be loving and caring, but that wasn't being received with, you know, with acceptance. It wasn't accepted. It wasn't lauded. It was like frowned upon. Um, and so I learned early on that like the way that I can become attractive, the way that I can become appealing to people is through aggression. And then at the same time, I was kind of packaging it underneath the, the idea that I was the bully of the bullies, right? And so it wasn't like I was just going to start fights with people. I was the one who would stand up and try to defend other folks who were being bullied. And I would do it, like you were saying, um, with my fist. And, you know, I would be the one, don't fight him, fight me. That started to give me reputation, a reputation as for being a man or a tough guy um, or thorough or what have you. And started to get me, like, attract to become attractive with, with the girls in my neighborhood. That is definitely something that I carry with me for the duration of my life. And I still struggle with that. Um, I still struggle with this belief that as a man, I should be able to control my environment. I should be able to control my environment. And usually that control is being exerted through my physical ability, through violence, through anger, you know? And I just started recently, like over the last few years, really investigating that. To understand that it is definitely directly connected to the patriarchy, right? This says that my privilege as a man is to be in control, which and I, when I think about it, like we're really never fully in control, but it's a privilege and it's a thought and it's an idea that is, you know, associated with our manhood. And we're told that this is what makes us men is our ability to control environments. Control not only just environments, but control people. Because a lot of my anger and rage and stuff came from situations in which I felt like people were treating me unfairly. And I felt that it was warranted for me to, to exert myself, my anger and even aggression and violence in order to make things fair and equitable. And even this fight for justice for so long for me, right? This movement for justice, this movement for liberation was driven by this desire to use my might, to use my physical strength, to use my anger, my rage in order to make things right. And it wasn't until like I started to challenge that. And, and it was a sister, you know, it's always, it's always black women who be giving you Jews. This is what I say to people like, listen, if you don't have a group of black women who are guiding you and informing your process of healing, uprooting the patriarchy that's in you, you're not making any progress. But this sister said to me, she said, Richard, you know, you can't be fueled solely by anger and rage, even if it's anger and rage towards injustice. And she says, love is like the only way to do it. And I started to shift um, my perspective to have a love for justice, a greater love for justice, instead of a hatred for injustice. And that love for justice didn't take away the courage and the warriorship that I believe it was always a part of my spirit, right? Uh, but it did because it takes courage to be a mediator. It takes courage to be a peacemaker. But what it did do is help me to realize, one, that I can be a mediator. I can be a peacemaker without exerting myself physically onto someone. I can be those things by one, going into a situation and understanding that hurt people hurt people. So even that bully is, has experienced harm themselves and that there's a need for them to heal. So it allowed me to come in from a position of compassion and a position of love to not just further escalate the situation, but to de-escalate the situation by seeing them as a human with their human experiences. That led to them 
being in a position where they felt like they need to and ultimately understanding that their need to and all of the things that they internalized were the same, came from the same root cause, the patriarchy, right? So um, I kind of went on a tangent with that, but, you know, I knew this conversation was going to be stimulating and you were going to draw some things out of me, but Man, but this just brings me to the concept of the, to the conversation that I wanted to have with you about, you know, systems of oppression, big picture. Um, one of the things that just recently came up and we had this conversation about sexism. Uh, we were talking about the patriarchy and we were saying that the patriarchy was akin to white supremacy, racism and sexism are equal if you think about them on an individual level and white supremacy and, and the patriarchy on a system structural level. And, um, someone asked, uh, I was facilitating a training with a group of men and, and women and non-binary folks. And um, one of the brothers asked in a way that was, you know, he had a question, but if you can tell he already had thoughts. And he said, so you're saying, like, so can women be sexist? You know that that question is the equivalent of you facilitating a conversation about racial equity or white supremacy, and you have a white person in the audience ask you a question about racism, right? Right? It's like, you know, I, I got a friend of mine, she says, listen, stop asking me questions that are Googleable, right? Like, do your research, right? But anyhow, I want you to, to talk a little bit about that and elaborate on your thoughts about the patriarchy. And more specifically, think about it within the context of sexual harm, too, because I think it makes it challenging for survivors of sexual harm, um, specifically male survivors of sexual harm, to understand the patriarchy when you've experienced a, a, a time of, of victimization um, where you felt powerless. And sometimes it's difficult for us to recognize the power that we still have as a result of the patriarchy. So I'm going to stop there and turn it over to you to talk a little bit about that. First, I didn't want to say, like, I love that love for justice. I really appreciate that. I like the way you frame that. Um, I think really it comes down to the way that people understand power and privilege. Um, the way that we tend to think about things around, like, patriarchy, around violences, that we really only think about them as, like, interpersonal as like intimate as like one-on-one -on -one, that it is we are very victim blaming in our culture that like, we assume that everything that happens in this world happens because of just one person or two persons or it's your own personal responsibility uh, ignoring the fact that much of the conditions in our environments and locations in our society entirely is engineered and created um, that we are all actively working together to uphold everything that we're doing, um, all of these systems. And so when we're thinking about it, I think folks just misunderstand what power and privilege is and what it looks like. And so when we're talking about things like white supremacy and racism and anti-blackness, we're talking about institutional power. We're talking about power uh, over others based on a dominator culture. So when we're talking about like critical race theory, intersectionality, that's a great way to break it down of understanding white supremacy. It's understanding that we as a society and as a culture believe and worship and have allegiance to the idea that those who are white, blonde hair, blue eyed, straight, cisgendered, wealthy and affluent with a certain face, with a certain uh, value systems are the most perfect being. And that's what that means to be colonialism and imperialism and white supremacy. That we believe that there's a one particular identity is supreme to all others, that that is what we should all be ascribing to and subscribing to. That we get these ideas through media, through music, through things that we consume, through jokes that we tell, through the ideas that we share, that this one particular way of being is the right way of being. That we only need to believe in that in order to uphold it. So if you are not those things that you're told that you're supposed to be, which is white and male, you are automatically not going to perceive yourself as correct. 
You know, we already as human beings, you know, it's all of this is about exploitation of human nature. You know, that's part of what neoliberalism kind of gets to the root of. It's about trying to provide an avenue to appease human nature, to appease, you know, us feeling out of control of reality because nothing is ever in our control. That is the truth. The truth is that we can't control anything. Um, and so we've designed systems where we can feel like we're in control, that we can feel like we're able to collaborate and work together. However, over time, there's been a system of imperialism and white supremacy that has been created. You know, with always different types of systems that have been oppressing people. This is the current one we're li- living in right now. And it's really just about that power and control. It's about that privilege. It's about being able to be positioned that have the ability to either gain advantages um, in life or end up disadvantaged in life because you are further away from what is considered the dominant or the norm. And so it's kind of like the way that it works um, in a system and in a culture that way. If you are not getting any kind of resources, you're not getting employment, you're not being perceived as worthy or valuable of receiving anything, down to respect and dignity because you don't fit up there and what's considered to be supreme you make the changes and adjustments to survive you know you'll make those those compromises in order to gain what you need for survival for food for shelter for employment for education and that can look a lot of different kind of ways so when you're talking about like women and sexual violence and men and boys you know we talk about the patriarchy and how patriarchy is part of that dominator culture as well, where we position that we believe that men are the most dominant, particularly white supremacy, white men, right? But we believe that men should be the most dominant, that they are the ones who should be governing things. And we have created these systems that support that. One of those systems is uh, what bell hooks would call like maternal sadism, Uh where mothers and women are essentially trapped within this structure to raise boys and to so raise boys and be in relationship with men in a particular way that upsold patriarchy. So by putting boys into the man box, telling their sons that they're not allowed to cry, that they're not, that they have to man up, that they can't really be abused, that they can't really experience any kind of violence, that they need to be strong and tough, that you have to fight all the time. Like These are things that we might see women encouraging. We want a man who's dangerous. You're not a real man. You're not really sexy. You're not really what we're expecting you to be unless you're dangerous. And that's what maternal sadism is because to be dangerous and to have boys and want men who are dangerous, you have dangerous men and you have dangerous boys. And that's where you get gun violence. And that's where you get domestic violence. That's where you get sexual violence. That's where you get drunk drivers. That's where you get homicides and suicides. You know, we have dangerous men because we raise dangerous boys to become dangerous men. And the reason why women and girls would participate in that is because then they're told that they're not real women, that they're not real wives, that they don't want men in their lives, that they're not real mothers, if they're not parenting their boys in a certain kind of way, that they're failing as women, that they're not fulfilling their own femininity if they're not participating in this particular way. And so, no, women can't be misogynistic or sexist because it's really just the patriarchy telling them what they are supposed to be, how they're supposed to be, how they're supposed to show up. And that's what they're supposed to always sit in this particular space of white, cisgender, thin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you don't ascribe to that and you don't fulfill that, then you're failing, you're wrong, you're messed up. And nobody wants to be failing or wrong and messed up. We want to be human. We want to be full. We want to be in control of ourselves. We want to be who we are. And so we're looking for those things to give us those solutions. We're looking for a way to work together to make that come into being, into fruition. And we're being exploited by, by that. And so we just subscribe to it and we just reproduce it every day because we're not stopping to look at the reality. And it's not that it's not service.
we're not looking at the reality that this is not giving us the results that we are trying to get, which is to be loved, which is to be safe, which is to be protected, and to have somebody who is of sound mind, heart, and spirit, who is a man to stand beside us. And so this just becomes like corrupted, essentially. I love how you phrase that and frame it. I think it's, it's really critical for us to have that that systems analysis, right? And be aware of all these, these systems that have been constructed to perpetuate the behaviors or create, produce behaviors that perpetuates it. And it, it, there are people who are benefited from it, right? And that's the hard part, right? Is as much as I often promote human centered approaches to, you know, addressing the, the ways that patriarchy shows up in men and internalized patriarchy in men. Um, because patriarchy heart hurts us too, right? It compromises our ability to experience our full range of humanity, right? To be okay with that tenderness that we all have inside of us, right? To have relationships that are loving and caring with other men, you know, without it being stigmatized and labeled. You know, the patriarchy shows up in ways that it hurts us all. Obviously, as men, we benefit from it because we meet the description, we fit the description of the supreme, the supremacy model for the most part. But, you know, one of the things that came to mind as you were talking about that is, is I was just thinking about it just puts us in survival mode. You know, moms are in survival mode. Like, I need my son to be tough. I need my son to be, you know, aggressive because it's a dog and dog world and the world is not going to be nice to him. You know, and I need him to to be able to compete because there's a fear that if my son is not like that, right, he will not be able to survive, right? And then even in my experiences, um, I understood that that was like, unfortunately, the environment that we were living in under the conditions of the war on black and brown communities, uh, under the guise of, of the war on drugs and, you know, the, the crack epidemic, plaguing our communities and, you know, the worst economic conditions of the time during Reaganomics where there was this, you know, need for financial survival. And you add drugs into the equation and people think that they can sell drugs to escape and people think they can use drugs to escape, you know. And then you have like this space of people just doing what they need to do to survive, but it leads to a lot of hurt. You add guns into the equation and it's a lot of hurt, a lot of harm. And so, of course, it makes sense that, you know, and this is something that I had to understand, that it makes sense that this system wants a, a man who's tough because I don't want to be able to, I want to be able to walk to the corner store, to the bodega. I, I want to be able to go to the movie and not be, threatened and not be harmed. I want to feel protected in that space. And so I'm just thinking about all of these things and how they're tying into where we're at now um, in our society and like the things that are seemingly like the norm and like always have been. Um, because when we think about reimagining the world in a way that is more just, fair and equitable and appreciative and welcoming of difference of the beauty of differences um, and diversity, man, like we have to be able to challenge some of these things that seem to be so deeply ingrained in our system. So be so like seemingly like naturally a part of the world um, in ways that can allow us to get to that place. Right. And, and if we, if we don't have that analysis, if we don't have that analysis, we're going to be stuck. I think about, a lot of the folks who are survivors of sexual harms and people who work with male survivors, and I want to get your thoughts on this, people who work with male survivors of sexual harm. And I often say, like, it's great that you're committed to this work. It's great that you want to do this, like, healing work with these individuals. Um, but if you don't have a systems analysis, you're not going to really be able to understand the behaviors, even if you have a... a, a a trauma-informed perspective that you understand that trauma shows up in ways that seem like, you know, that they are self-destructive, but they're protective processes that are trauma responses that serve them at one point but may no longer be serving them now. But if you don't have a systems analysis, 
to your point earlier, I think that's what oftentimes leads to victim blaming, right? Because if you don't, you're going to blame the person that you are deeply committed to helping, to serving. And I think this is universal, but specifically when we think about male survivors of sexual harm, like how important is it, Nirvana, for, for people who are doing work to help survivors of sexual harm, male survivors of sexual harm, um, to understand like the way that the patriarchy shows up, to understand the way that white supremacy and anti-blackness shows up. How important it is. And think about, you know, there's quite a few folks who listen to the podcast and they're genuinely like interested and like, and they want to know, um, the best ways that they can help men heal. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind really is that what it all it takes for all of us is like, again, facing the truth. It's going to take a real true divestment from these systems. You know, the reality is that we, are all upholding them, you know, without acknowledging male survivors, we don't have to acknowledge patriarchy in a real way and how it functions with our culture of violence. If we don't acknowledge patriarchy in a real way, then all of us who benefit from it will continue to benefit from it. And there's a lot of different populations of folks who benefit from it. I wanted to definitely make a point for all the things that you listed about um, that, you know, folks are, we're just surviving with all those things going on. Are we truly surviving anyway? Part of some of the, the studies that I look at is understanding about like doing wake work is understanding about defending the dead and like, what is, what did the dead want? You know, what do those who are traumatized and hurting and feel dead want, um, who are literally dead want, and they want typically us to be alive. You know, they would want to finish their business and, or to be alive to do what they want to do before they are dead. So we can't necessarily bring the dead back to life, but we can stop unaliving people. And so what it really is, is trying to look, imagine what it looks like to really divest from a system and divest from a way of thinking where we are overextending violence with each other, that we only understand things in terms of what the system wants and not in terms of what the community wants and not in terms of what like you want and what your family wants. It's like, again, like, it's like looking at that reality of like what is it that we are actually experiencing and not what it is that we're trying to experience and what we wish that it was and how we want it to be. Like, what is it that who you actually are in your day-to-day life? What is really happening that you need to serve men what is it that you actually need to be a healthy community member? What your, does your community really need to be a healthy community? We don't all need to be exactly the same in the entire world. You know, you know we think about like what everyone is doing. But if you're in Florida, you know, does it really matter exactly how I'm organizing in Ohio? You're in Florida. You know, we can learn from each other. We can collaborate. But you don't have to build your family or build your way the way we do it because that's the way we do it. It's not the right way. It's just the way that we have it. And so I think it really comes down to just like really naming properly and precisely all the roles that we actually play in oppression. Like none of us are innocent. It's really understanding that power, understanding those privileges and making changes. I know we talk a lot about consciousness raising and I love consciousness raising, but we really need action. You know, we need attitude changes. We need values changes. And we need, like, action on those things and those physical uh, accountability structures. So I, I think that, I hope that answers your question. Of course you answered it. Of course you did. You know, everything, and, I, and that last part that you started touching on, I think that's a critical piece, right? Because so much of it is, and even to my point about systems analysis, and which is the form of, consciousness raising, right? And it's like, that is great to understand, but really to understand like how these systems have been created and how they impact us. But it's really about the personal work too. And that is, that's the healing piece, right? Like part of the healing in my, in my opinion is, is disrupting these systems, fighting these systems, um, to change them because of the, we know the massive harm that they cause 
and the way that it disempowers people. And so if we think about trauma as a form of disempowerment and then the process of organizing, like consciousness raising and organizing and systems change work, transformative justice, all of these things as like a form of reclamation of our power, like reclaiming our power, that is definitely healing. But then there's like the internal healing work because those systems lie in us and those systems show up in our interactions and in our relationships in ways that we cause harm, right? When we don't even intend to, like we're conscious. And I think it's even more difficult for people who've raised their consciousness because it's so inconsistent with your value system that you espouse. But the reality is it's still in you. You know what I mean? Where none of us can expect to be a constant struggle. Like it's a constant struggle. You know what I mean? Um, so there's this piece about self-compassion. There's this piece about, about grace that we show ourselves and we show others in this process of healing internally and doing that inner work to heal ourselves. So that we can reduce the likelihood of causing harm to other people because of the, the way that these systems live in our bodies. And so I appreciate that perspective. And yes, brother, you answered that question. I want to ask you to, to share some words of encouragement. Um, I'm just thinking about all of the people who listen to the Just Human podcast. You know, you have people who work with, um, survivors. You have people who, you know, are survivors. I think for me, the most important audience is, 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 are those who, who've experienced harm because I think, you know, they're the ones, specifically male survivors, because we know that, um, in your work and my work that, you know, there aren't too many spaces in which male survivors can feel like that represents a community of like-minded folks with shared experiences and shared aspirations to heal. And then, they can feel seen, heard, and understood in ways that the patriarchy, again, compromising our full humanity will disallow us to, to feel those things. And so for me, like the most important audience are those who are, who are survivors, male survivors of sexual harm and their loved ones, right? The people who are working with them, who are trying to love them through some of their trauma responses in which they can't explain and don't understand. What are some words of like encouragement, hope that you can give folks? We done talk about a lot of stuff. We done talk about a lot of things we've done systemically, personally. We don't want people to leave off this, listening to this conversation and be like, damn, you know what? I'm tired. I ain't doing none of this stuff. So what are some words of encouragement and some words of hope that we can, that you can impart to the folks listening? Uh, I guess lots of, lots of things I could offer. I think the first thing would be give yourself grace. Uh, take your time. I know that everything seems like it needs to be done today. That it's the work. It's urgent. The healing is urgent. Get into the next day. It's urgent. But take a breath. Breathe. Because that is the point. You know, the point is to be able to breathe, is to be here. And as long as you are here, and that you are here and being, you are okay. Think of all of this work in terms of decades. Uh, freedom ain't far. You know, we've been at this for a while. You know, at the end of the day, it can't be like this forever. You know, this is not the natural state of things. It feels like it's the natural way to be. It feels like it's always been this way. If it maybe feels like it'll go on forever, take your time. You'll find your way there. Um, I think of all of us like as shooting stars or as vessels and as ships. And so there's a quote, I think Dion Brand, they have a quote, a boat is both a departure and an arrival. So you are already exactly the way you need to be. So you're perfect. You don't really need to do anything else. Just be yourself and you'll be fine. There are people who love you. There's those, there are services uh, available. There's plenty of movement that's happening. We are having a healing revolution. Uh, you're not alone. And I usually sign off with, you don't have to be unafraid, uh, just asking you to be courageous. Let's go. Um, and the last thing I want you to share, and, and folks will be able to find more information in your link and 
the work that you're doing? You know, what is something that you're doing in this spirit that you're really proud of? I know you talk about your book. You can talk about your book. But you can talk about, you know, something that you're, you're proud of that you want to share, an offering that you want to give to the people. Oh, an offering. I love that term. I feel like this this was my offering. Um, but um, something, something to share to give to the people. That's a good one. Yeah, I'm working on a couple of books. I'm working on a lot of books, actually. So I am working on a book that should be coming hopefully in the next year or two. It's a creative memoir about my healing journey, specifically around like the past like five or six years of my life. It's about uh, consciousness, coming to consciousness, semi-consciousness, and the Black unconscious. It is about understanding where you are and your placement and position on the plantation, on the ship, trying to escape, finding yourself unable to escape, going mad trying to escape, and then eventually uh, finding yourself on a journey back to tenderness. Uh, so that's what my book is about. And so I've been working really hard on it. I'm at 61,000 words. If you are not aware, the average book is about 65,000 words. So. I'm very close. <laughs> Super close. Wow. I mean, just the the summary of the book is an offer. <laughs> so I'm sure everyone is going to be like, can't wait. They can't wait till it comes out. Thank you, Javon, so much, brother, um, for this conversation, this opportunity to build with you. I'm sure it's not going to be the last time we work together. I'm looking forward to continuing to do this work on this healing revolution. And um, be well. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate you so much. Uh, peace and solidarity. Peace. No pain, no glory. Let me share my story. I got this podcast is produced by myself, Richard Smith, in collaboration with Men Healing, a national nonprofit dedicated to helping provide accessible resources and community for any male or male identifying survivor of sexual harm. Men Healing's aim is to help heal, inspire, and break isolation for survivors. You can check out our healing events, videos, and other resources at www.menhealing.org. Special shout out to Jordan Massiangelo for helping produce and edit the show. Holla and YOC, the Youth Organizing Collective, for allowing us to use their dope and powerful song, Share Your Story, off their album, The Report Back, The Healing Justice Movement and all of the unsung brothers and sisters who are working tirelessly to make healing and justice accessible for all. Peace.